Uh, if you have your Bibles, I uh, hope you do bring a Bible. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there are some in the seat, under the seat in front of you. And if you don't actually have a Bible, feel free to take one, that one with you. Uh, I saw a few weeks ago the movie The Darkest Hour. Anybody seen that one? Winston Churchill, World War II. Really enjoyable. Um, he was, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of England eight months after the beginnings of Germany invading. England had been forced into the conflict and the world war, not normal times, and Winston Churchill was definitely uh, an abnormal leader, but fit for the time. Uh, really dark days, distressing, and yet not without purpose. And Winston Churchill, before um, Parliament gave what probably one of his most famous speeches, and he said, you ask, what is our aim? Remember this speech? What is our aim? He says, I can answer in one word, it is victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, victory. The goal was victory, and everyone then was to live their lives in light of the present difficulties to accomplish that goal. So they had to live differently in that age than they did at any other time because of the war, and they had to live differently because of that aim. What Paul writes in chapter 7, verses 20, or 25 to 40, is something like this. Paul writes in verse 26 in, in light of the present distress. There was something going on in this area, maybe some great persecution, and so Paul is calling them in light of those times uh, for a specific goal, and the goal is to be anxious to please the Lord in verse 32, or in verse 35, to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. And so our victory as believers, no matter the season, is to live our lives utterly to please God. Not to please man, although we do want to please people as long as it's in line with God's word, but to please God, to be devoted to the Lord above all others. And in particularly difficult times, especially in the areas of marriage and family and sex, Paul's going to write on, here's how you might consider living in this specific season to be utterly devoted to God. So that's what's happening in these chapters. And so can there be anything better for you and I than to give our lives and to live our lives to be utterly pleasing to the one who has given himself for us in our place on a cross for our sin so that we might have heaven forever. That's what we're going to be talking about. How can you, right here, right now, in your life, in your season, live your life utterly devoted to Jesus Christ? That's what we want. Let me read these verses. I'll pray and then I want to explain a little bit more about them. Uh, 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five to 40. Now concerning the betrothed, or in the Greek, virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is, a good, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, 
Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, look on us now. Uh, We don't want to forget your law. Give us life according to your promises. Give us strength to seek your statutes. God, give us life according to your rules. There is much in this world that would teach us to swerve from your testimonies. But God, we want to keep your commands. And so God, help us. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so God, help us to see this as that. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins our section again in verse 25 with two words, now concerning. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 7, he says the same thing, now concerning. At the beginning of chapter 8, now concerning. If you remember, the Corinthian church had written Paul a letter asking him questions. And in chapter 7, the questions have all to do with family and marriage and sexuality and sex. And so he has been asked questions and it seems like the question here is, has to do with whether or not it's right to marry. Whether or not it's right to marry. You saw this at the beginning of chapter 7. Um, there it was dealing more with, is it more godly within marriage to refrain from the marriage bed? And this here, it's, is it better to marry? And Paul answers in light, as we see in verse 26, at the present distress. In verse 31, he's reminded that this world is a changing. It's shifting sand beneath our feet. And so Paul is going to give his answer in light of the present distresses, which I believe to be some persecution in light of the ever-changing world. And as I said, Paul's answer is given in the form of a principle for a purpose-filled life regarding marriage. The principle in this text is what Pastor Jeff preached on last week, contentment. Wherever you find yourself, just be content there. If you're married, be content in your marriage. If you're not married, be content in your celibacy. 
If you're a widow or a widower, be content there. But if you marry, it's fine. And that principle is applied then in light of the situation of the persecution. Uh, my children and I are listening to an audio book called The Boys in the Boat. Highly recommend it. Tad bit of language, but delightful story of a, uh, around the time of the uh, Great Depression. Any of you alive then yet? I don't think so, huh? Probably not. Uh, and uh, one of the things you saw during the Great Depression is if you were single, you, you, you did all right during it. You were flexible. You could be mobile. Uh, you could work anytime, anywhere. But those married, especially those married kids, had a particularly difficult time. They weren't as mobile. They, they couldn't move. They, they had to worry about their spouse and their children. I think what Paul's doing in this text is something very similar. If, if you as an individual without a spouse, without children, are being threatened for your faith, that's one thing. But if somebody's threatening your wife or your husband, or your children, that's a, another kind of difficulty all in itself. You think of Daniel in the lion's den, right? Law was passed that you should only pray to the uh, king. Daniel refused and openly prayed to the God above, God in heaven, knowing that his life was on the line. Imagine if they threatened Daniel's wife instead, or threatened to throw Daniel's six-year-old daughter to the lions. That's a, that's a different kind of pressure, isn't it? And so Paul here says, in light of the persecutions, in light of the present distresses, if you're celibate and you can remain so in a godly way and the temptations towards sex aren't overwhelming you, it might be better in this present distressing time to remain single. So I find this very interesting how Paul's doing this. He's being very fatherly here. You can imagine Paul, maybe with a son or a daughter, coming to him and saying, Dad, what should I do? What should I do? And Dad looks at the world around. Dad knows the child and his or her temptations and weaknesses and strengths and gives godly, wise advice in light of it all. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's being a good father. So the Holy Spirit is here teaching us during times of distress, during times of persecution, how you might think of marriage and family and so on. Uh, and so this is good. But what I want to do here is, Pastor Jeff and I, typically on a Tuesday before one of us is preaching, read through the text and talk about it. And this text was, we talked a long time because there's a lot of, questions that arise because of this text. And uh, one of the temptations, or maybe one of the expectations for preachers in our age, is to just be kind of a lecturer. Pastor Jeff said this last week, and I wanted to piggyback on it, that what you want to, or maybe what you evaluate as good preaching is, you come and let's say in um, verse 31, that last sentence, for the present form of the world is passing away. And you, you want to know what that means. You want to have the preacher with his depth of wisdom and knowledge and learning pull back the curtain and just make your brain bounce with happiness because you learned some new fact. 
And if the preacher does that for you, it's a good sermon. I've never heard that before. Whoa. And then after the sermon, you're in the back. Did you hear that? Wasn't that cool? The new information. Wow. And then you pat the preacher on the back and we feel good about ourselves and you feel good about yourself and it's another customer well served. That isn't what preaching's for. Okay? Now you are going to get some new data. You'll learn some new things. But preaching isn't to help you learn a bunch more. Preaching is to do what Paul's doing in this very text. He exhorts you to live in a godly way in light of the times and the seasons so that you walk out of here being challenged and convicted and encouraged and strengthened and struck down and feeling awful about yourself and feeling good about yourself and wondering why he's such a jerk. Because you want to live more like Jesus. Because you actually want to put into practice undivided devotion to the Lord. Because that's what real Christians want to do, right? Real Christians, people who confess Jesus as Lord really and truly, really do want to live more pleasing to him. That's what they care about. Isn't that what you care about? Is that what you care about? All right, then, then let's buckle up, right? Let, let's take this text and say, where am I missing it? Where is my life falling short of God's holy commands? Where am I being displeasing to him? Where is my devotion divided? That's what this text is for. And so that's what I want to do. So what I want to do is just talk about what is it, what is undivided devotion apply it to this teaching of marriage, and then look uh, what it looks like to deal in this world as if you have no dealing. So first, undivided devotion to the Lord. You and I really admire people who have like a singular focus. If you're around somebody who's just really good at something and does an excellent job at it, they're focused on it, they do well at it, it's great to admire their work. We have lots of people like that in our congregation. Go to Bill... Kingsbury and Judy Kingsbury's house and look at her quilts and look at Bill's bowls. It's incredible work. I didn't tell him I was going to do this and I'm not buttering you up. I don't want anything from you. People have a talent. They're good at something. They're focused on it. They've given themselves to it. It's really something. Uh, You see this all over the place. Maybe it's Henry Ford in his automobile or Romeo with his Juliet. This is the focus. This is their life. They want this above all other things. That's what's going on in this text. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, is teaching you that you should have one devotion. And this is true particularly in this text during a trying and difficult season. Please note that. Verse 26, it is good, or in view of the present distresses, to, to live your life in such a way that you have no encumbrances to being utterly devoted to God. And so Paul is kind of doubling down on the difficult days. He's not relieving the pressure. He's urging more so during these difficult days. It's going to be harder to live devoted to the Lord. And so make some hard decisions so that you can be utterly devoted to the Lord. I think that's all the more convicting here. You and I are born with the desire to be married. Little girls, my little girls, are already playing it. 
And we have a picture of Emmy in Mandy's wedding dress uh, several years ago. She's already thinking towards the day of marriage. And you did too, I did. And yet here Paul is saying, in order to remain utterly devoted to Jesus Christ during this difficult season, put that dream on hold maybe. This thing that you've been planning all your life for, maybe even have an engagement, but because of persecution, because you're supposed to be utterly devoted to Jesus Christ, pump the brakes on that. Put your dream on hold. Maybe put it to death because it might threaten how you're going to be pleasing to God. And, and we have to remind ourselves This isn't utterly devoted to God in the big, huge things, but in all the little things of our lives. I think that's one of the temptations we often fail at in Christianity. We make these big dreams and these big plans, and to be utterly devoted to God is to put this big dream into action. No, it's just, are you going to wake up on time tomorrow morning to read your Bible? Are you going to order your family around the dinner table so that you guys can get a meal together and Read the Bible a bit together. What are you going to do with your evening when you're exhausted? Are you just going to spend four hours soaking in media? It's the little things. How can you be devoted to God in the little things? If you've been reading along in our Bible reading program, and I'd encourage you to do it, uh, we just finished Second Chronicles. And we read of Jotham. Jotham, I don't know how to say his name. I wonder, I was reading it, I thought, I wonder why kids aren't, parents aren't naming their kids Jotham. If any of you are pregnant, I'd highly consider it for a boy. Um, Jotham was an incredible king. He led God's people to worship God alone. He removed the idols, and it notes there that he did what was pleasing in the sight of God. There was a king before him, whose name I don't remember, who went so far as to remove his mother from being queen mother because she was counseling the worship of false gods. And at no time, he was pleasing to the Lord. And then you have Hezekiah. And on and on, you have these notes of kings that were pleasing to God and kings that were displeasing to God. The kings that were pleasing to God were ultimately often displeasing to the people. And the, peop- and the kings that were displeased- displeasing to God were really happy among the people. And so this is the fi- choice we face. Are we going to be divided in our devotion to Jesus because we're giving our devotion to people Or are we going to be pleasing to God because we'll be willing to be displeasing to people? Now, one of the ways to help define this idea of undivided devotion is just to think of the word obedience. Last week in Pastor Jeff's text, uh, in verse 19, if you would look there, chapter 7, verse 19, he says, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. When Paul writes here in verse 32 to be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, or in verse 35 to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord, it's all about obedience. That's it. That's it. 
It is you, by faith, receiving God's commands as good and wise and actually obeying them. And we see this in this text. We see, we see it very clearly in this text. That in order to be obedient to God, you may have to take some steps. If you can't control your sexual urges, even though marriage and children might make your life more difficult during times of persecution, it's better to be obedient to the Lord and get married. Because undivided devotion to the Lord is about sexual unity in this text. Or... If you can control yourself sexually, it might be better to refrain from marriage and having children in order to be obedient to the Lord. Because you know that obedience to the Lord is going to cost you, and you just want it to cost you, not your spouse and not your children. And so maybe refrain from them so that you can be obedient, not be tempted towards disobedience because you know how much it will cost your family. And so undivided devotion is to the Lord. It means obedience. And I just want to encourage this. Make it real simple for yourself. You're not supposed to learn how to be obedient to you. Our world is all about undivided devotion to you, to me. Just do what you need to do for you. That's, that's the kind of marriage counseling that you'll get today. Your marriage is hard. Girl, you just need to do you. Right? You just need to take a break, figure out yourself, pamper yourself, find yourself, and then maybe you can love him. Now, guys don't talk like that. I don't know how guys talk like we don't have that kind of language as guys. Um, guys are just taught, I guess, to make sure they get enough time for hunting and golf and watching golf. Although God in heaven knows why anybody would watch golf. Right. Yeah. So it's about obedience. Why obedience? Because talk is cheap. Isn't it? You're real good at talking obedience. I'm really, really good at talking about my obedience. Please the Lord is feet on the ground. This kind of living to please the Lord is feet on the ground. If you want to evaluate your devotion to Christ, check your obedience. Evaluate your workplace. Are you just one of the guys or gals there? Is your talk just like all the other guys and gals there? Or are you different there? Do you get along with everybody in the workplace or do they think you're probably a little holier than they are? Because you should probably be thought a little holier than they are. If you want to evaluate your obedience, ask your spouse. You'll probably lie to yourself. And either tell yourself you're way better than you are or way worse than you are. Just ask your spouse. Or ask your parent. Or ask your sister. She'll tell you. 
the Lord Jesus was once informed. He was in a house. It was really crowded. And he was told that his mother and his brothers were unable to get in to see him. And, and Jesus said, who are my mothers and brothers? Who are my mother and bro- my brothers? He said, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's what this text is about. Are you Jesus' brother, sister, mother? Because you are intent on doing the will of God. Now, of course you're going to mess this up. We're bad at this. Um, a few weeks after a sermon, somebody came up to me, and, and I, I don't know, I must have done something in the um, confession of sin time, and he came up and said, I'm glad we do that, because I'm sure I've sinned three times between that time of confession and when I'm talking to you now. And that's about right. I had somebody come up before this service who has some stuff going on in their life and ask if, if they're allowed to take communion because of that stuff. That's precious. That's the kind of life we're talking about here. That, that's what he's talking about here. So dogs, you know, only have one master, right? They may play with other people and do that, but when their master speaks, they listen. That's what this text is about. Now, the way, the place Paul applies this undivided devotion to the Lord is marriage, or remaining celibate. He takes this idea of pleasing God and talks about it in the world where the sufferings are in relation to family and marriage and sex. So what I want to do is just quickly hit on a few of these main subjects in here and help you see what it looks like to be pleasing to the Lord in these areas uh, and try to exhort you in them. In verse 25, if you're following, it says, now concerning, or concerning the betrothed, then you see next to the word betrothed there probably a number. I, I think mine has a number seven. I don't know what yours does. And if you look down in the footnotes, it'll say Greek virgins. So Paul is here writing to those who are unmarried and celibate. Those who are rema- remaining, who are believers who are remaining sexually pure. Apparently, they've asked the question of whether it's right or not for them to marry. But I just want to take a moment here and urge sexual purity of of celibacy before marriage. Um, Our time is no different than any other time, okay? Sexual impurity is as old as Adam and Eve. Our day isn't any greater or worse than any other day. If you know anything about church history, um, we're not any better or worse. And I'm not saying that to make ourselves feel better. But the Bible does teach an absolute restriction on sexual activity. Notice I said sexual activity, not just intercourse, sexual activity prior to marriage. And so Paul here is urging you to be pleasing the Lord in that. You to be pleasing to the Lord, or you to have undivided devotion to the Lord in that area. So Paul 
speaks to the virgins. He says, in light of the present difficulties, it's good to remain as you are. But, in verse 36, if your passions are too strong, then get married. We saw that back in verse 9. If anyone cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So marriage is the solution God has given you to your sexual desires. But prior to marriage, there is to be no sexual activity. And the way that Paul does it in 1 Timothy 5, the way he defines sexual activity is, he applies it to your family relationships. Paul, he says to Timothy, a young man, who's asked Paul, how do I as a young pastor relate to the young women I church? And he says, as you would a sister. So to put it in more common terms, if you wouldn't do it with your sister, you shouldn't be doing it with anybody else. That's sexual purity in Scripture. Right? Or if you're a woman with your brother. So that's the line in Scripture. That's the line. So, brothers and sisters, young men and young women, take care here. Don't push the line. You are not strong enough. Take care not to be around those who are in the business of matchmaking and making fun of things related to boys and girls, which you young people do, and it really is yucky. Quit trying to match everybody up in the church. Quit talking about who's got a boyfriend and who's got a girlfriend. Just knock it off. Let people alone on it, please. But here, undivided devotion to the Lord is in the area of celibacy. Second, we see in verse 27, if you're bound to a wife, do not seek to be free. No divorce. So the principle again in this chapter is contentment. You're to trust in the Lord and remain in the condition you're in. So no divorce, except in the noted instance in the Bible of sexual morality within the marriage or abandonment of your marriage by one who's an unbeliever. Otherwise, no divorce. You're not to seek to be free. Paul has to say that because he knows that someone will inevitably take his teaching to remain celibate as a license to get a divorce. So he knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows how we can take a good teaching and twist it to um, uh, allow for our sin. So that's why he has to say that. And Peter warns against people like that. In 1 Peter 3, that those who take the hard things Paul teaches them twist them to suit their own desires. So don't do that. Divorce brothers and sisters among believers ought to be rarer than actually seeing a whole. Right? It really shouldn't be a thing amongst us. That's the biblical standard to be devoted to the Lord. And it is much more pleasing in the Lord to remain in a very hard marriage than it would be to get divorced. And again, if you're in that kind of a marriage, please come and make it known. A couple other things quick. We should realize that Paul is saying here that marriage will bring some trouble to you. Right? Um, it'll bring some anxiety. And so marriage can be hard. 
even outside of seasons of persecution, it'll bring challenges. So if you're thinking about getting married or if you're newly married, expect it. You have two sinners living until death do you part. (laughs) What do you expect? And have faith for your spouse's sin. Okay? Your spouse is going to sin against you. And maybe repeatedly so. Have faith that God will forgive that sin and even cleanse that person of that sin. Forgive. Second, we do see that a married person is to be anxious in how to please their spouse. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. The married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And Paul doesn't note that as if it's wrong. Now, there is a wrong anxiousness to please your spouse, an idolatrous normal anxiousness to please your spouse. But here Paul just states that if it's normal. And I think it is normal. You and I should be more anxious, not sinfully anxious, but more thoughtful and considered about how to please our husband or how to please your wife. And so pay attention to your spouse. Men, pick up after yourself. Like your wife isn't your maid. Women, consider having the house in shape when your husband gets home. And there's many things we could ask, but ask your spouse. Listen to your spouse. Pray for this. How can I please my spouse more? We see towards the end of the text that somebody who has lost his or her husband or wife is permitted to remarry. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So the only restriction on you need to marry a compatible believer. But if you're a widow or a widower, you are permitted to remarry. Well, with wisdom, but you have freedom in this regard. I want to say that because losing a spouse is really, really hard, and sometimes you feel like you're betraying your spouse if you're going to get remarried. And it just isn't so. The person you marry can't replace your previous spouse. In some ways, he or she will be better and worse. All right, so, but you're free. The last thing I want to close with is uh, verse 31. Really, verses 28 to 34, but 31 says it succinctly. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What does that mean? Paul says that those who have wives are to live if they had none. Those who mourn as though they weren't. Those who rejoice as if they aren't. Those who buy as if they have nothing. And those who deal with the world as if they have no dealings with the world. What is the Holy Spirit here teaching us? He's teaching us to put Christ above everything. That's it. He's teaching that you have no no Lord but Jesus Christ not teaching you to ignore your wife or to not pay your bills. He's just teaching you that your spouse isn't Jesus. Your pastor isn't Jesus. Your boss isn't Jesus. The amount of money in the bank account isn't Jesus. The size of your boat isn't Jesus. And on and on and on. So how do you live in this world as though you're not living in this world? The mistake is sometimes to think that this is teaching to remove all things of the world. 
sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That's not what it's teaching. It's teaching you how to rightly use things of the world. It's teaching you how to eat food to the glory of God. It's teaching you how to knit, I don't know if knitting is the right word, Afghans to the glory of God. I'm trying for some of you who do these things. It's teaching you how to do recreations and drink beer and do outdoor pursuits and use technology and use your good gifts and whatever skills you have to the glory of God. How? How do you deal with this world as though you have no dealings with it? And here I'm just thinking, I think the first thing is just be grateful for whatever you have. Be really grateful. Second, be very generous. The principle here is you're just a steward. We're just stewards. Whatever you have ultimately belongs to the Lord. It's from him for you to use for his glory. And the way that you steward what you've been given is to give. Freely received, freely give. Don't have such a tight clench on whatever the Lord has given you. If the Lord were to take it out of your hand, would he break your fingers? Do you hold it loosely? Are you a giver with what the Lord has given you? Are you hospitable in your home? Do you as your wife welcome your husband to share his time with others and vice versa? Do you use your family time to serve others? How generous are you with the income God is providing you? Especially meeting the needs of others in the church. I think generosity is a great way to deal with this world as though you have no dealings. To give and give and give and give. Don't be stingy. Lastly, enjoy all these things, but realize that we'll give an account before God. God is the source of all true delight. He is the place of all comfort. See, the thing is, you and I try to find comfort in other places. We try to find ultimate peace in other places. We try to find the fatherly care that we so desire in other places. We try to find the security and significance and acceptance from God in other places. And when Paul writes to deal with the world as they have no dealings, it's to find all those things firstly and ultimately in Jesus. That's it. Because you should know there is no fatherly care like that of the Father above. There is no security like that in God Almighty. There is no comfort like being in the presence of God. And so find it in God. That's what this text is saying. Find it in God. Let's pray. Father, please help us to do this. Not with pretentiousness. Not with thinking we're anything. Not with uh, thinking that we can do it perfectly, but trying with all that you've given us to be pleasing to you, repenting of sin along the way, but living our lives as if you are the ultimate goal and prize. And to deal with this world as though we have no dealing. So that at the end of time, God, we might be received into your presence and enjoy it well. And so God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.